we have uh, been exploring some creative ways to introduce each one of these heroic messages. And so if you've been with us the last couple weeks, every week's kind of had a different way of exploring this characteristic of trust. And this morning we're talking about, I mean, this heroic characteristic. This morning we're talking about trust, but even more than that, we are going to explore one of my favorite heroes. It is a wild thing to try to understand what in the world God's doing when things don't seem to make sense. I can remember the first time I ever had to say no to an incredible opportunity. Like it's easy to, when you don't have a lot of options and one option opens up, go, wow, God, thanks for this option. But it's really hard when there's great options and you have to say no sometimes to a great option. Or it's really hard when there's a great option and you want it and it doesn't seem to come through. It's easy to trust God and trust Jesus when you can see what you think he must be doing in that moment. That's why I love this little skit. When I have my eyes on the plan and God spelled out for me what I think the plan is, it's much easier to step into that plan. But what do we do when we can't see what the plan is? How do we stay devoted to God? How do we trust God when we don't know what he's doing? and we can't see the outcome. When I was uh, coming out of Bible college, I was still a little angry at God. I was a little miffed that I was gonna go this ministry route. I wasn't really sold yet that God uh, was gonna take care of me if I went into ministry. I had this idea in my head that pastors work really hard for not a lot, and then they have to get other jobs later in life so that they can work until, hopefully work until they die. And I was like, that's not the plan that I want to do, God. I want to be the guy who sponsors kids to summer camp, who they swarm to me before summer camp because I have positioned myself in such a way that I can just bless all these kids and send them to camp. I'll be that guy. You know the factor that was in there? The guy who made enough money to do all those things, okay? And so that was my dream. So when that didn't seem to be the plan, when year one out of Bible college was work for free, and year two was work for free. And year three was, hey, we really love how you work for three. <laughs> Not three, for free. Year four was suddenly, hey, work for something, which was awesome. But year seven, someone offered me a real job in my mind. It was a chance to go back into uh, God's country that I thought at the time, which is California. Ooh, you can see how God's rescued me since then. <laughs> Come on now. It was a chance to earn more than I had ever even thought a pastor could earn. It was a great gig at a great place. We went down, my wife and I, we had no kids at the time. We were, what's the word when, we, we weren't wined and dined because it's ministry. <laughs> we were just dined and dined, right? <laughs> and at the end of a lot of dining, an opportunity to go and work in this amazing place was given to us. And so we thought, finally, the will of God is clear. We got on an airplane flying back up to, then we were in Spokane and we were wept over leaving Spokane because we knew we were gone. After two days of prayer, some fasting, believe it or not, it couldn't have been more clear from God that we weren't supposed to go. And I remember almost being angry at God. 
Like seriously, I've worked really hard. I've sacrificed. I deserve, come on now, I deserve some benefit. I deserve an easier in my mind job than this. I'd, what in the world could you possibly be doing? And in the moment, it made no sense other than God wasn't in it. Now, I can look back and what's amazing is in hindsight, I can go, wow, do you know what God rescued us out of? There was colossal explosion within that church. There have been through three or four lead pastors since then. They currently don't have one. The, everything that could have gone potentially wrong in that environment seemed to go wrong in that environment. And whoa, how the Lord protected us. But in the moment, I couldn't figure it out. You have your story of in the moment, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening or why is this not happening? And you look back and you go, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that I was pursuing that person. And I thought it was you. My heart was full and my eyes were rosy and the butterflies were going. And I thought it was you, but looking forward and what an amazing and better plan you had. But in the moment, you're like, God, why? Or why not? So this morning, we're going to explore a hero who really, really went through some of this. What I love about our hero series is I hope that you have noticed that these are real people in real life situations, having to deal with real circumstances and making choices that somehow God has managed for thousands of years to save for us to explain to us what it means to truly be heroic. I bet... I was messing around with the definition of hero this week because I've been in this series for a while and I was looking it up and I keep teasing because the dictionary defines it as a person who's noted for courageous acts of nobility of character. A person who, in the opinion of others, has achieved special things, has special abilities, is regarded as a role model or ideal. And I love that the dictionary says the male star of a show. I was like, What? Because come on, ladies, we've been talking about some lady heroes. Webster's got to update. But then I always laugh because it ends with a sandwich. And I think, man, we don't know how to define a hero. Thank God that he has preserved for us characteristics and stories that remind us of what is really heroic. So if you have your Bibles... I'm going to have you open up. Now, we've kind of tackled things differently because some of these heroes that we've talked about have really long stories, and I want to get through it in a week. And so in the first, uh, in the first session, uh, the first hero we tackled with Joseph, you know, it's 13 chapters, and so I just kind of told you the story. Um, we, we looked at some video last week with Noah, and we, we kind of had a fun, interactive way to talk about that. Today, we're going to talk about Ruth. Come on now. And Ruth is four chapters, and I can read it in about 12 minutes, and we can just go. But uh, we're not going to do that. I'm going to dive in. I'm going to spend a lot of time in Ruth chapter 1 and Ruth chapter 2. And then I'm going to fast forward through 3. And I'm going to warn you, if you've got children in the room, Ruth chapter 3 is hilarious. And you may have to plug some ears or explain some things later. Um, <laughs> I'll warn you when we get there. And then we'll get to Ruth chapter 4, and we'll see what God did in her life that is so stinking amazing. But I was thinking about Ruth and this idea of how devoted she was, how through what we're going to experience with her, some horrific circumstances, she kept pressing on and stayed 
loyal and faithful to God. And I was trying to describe devotion in my mind and in my head to you. So I was thinking about a way that you guys would understand devotion here. So I brought a couple of hats. And here's, here's a way you would know devotion. I haven't lived in this town very long. And if you saw me walking around, rocking this hat, come on. Some of you, let me take it off before you get your phones out. Some of you would have positive and some of you have negative reactions to that, right? Some of you would go, yeah, he's on the team. And some of you go, would go, well, he's not very devoted, right? He just jumped from team to team. But if you saw me walking around rocking this hat, although you have a negative reaction, why do you have a negative reaction? Because you're devoted to your team. But you'd go, okay, I get it. He's from there. Come on now. That's where he grew up. We were all Joe Montana and Jerry Rice fans back in the day. Come on. You had their picture on your wall, gentlemen. Don't, don't try to lie. Right next to your Steve Largent gear. Yeah, see, come on. I know you did. But you recognize devotion when it comes to fans. You recognize what it looks like. You recognize that when someone sticks it out, because it's easy to find Seahawk gear nowadays, right? Every store has it in stock fully, things you never imagined you'd be able to get before. Those of you that have been fans for a while know it used to be Slim Pickens. You used to have to go to specific stores at specific times and pre-order your size because no one was carrying that gear. Nobody was because they weren't doing well. Devotion is sticking it out when things don't look so great, right? So if we understand it as fans of teams, then why is it difficult sometimes to put that into the context of our lives and of our faith? That sticking it out when things don't look like they're all coming together. And so we're gonna experience that in the book of Ruth today. The book of Ruth is awesome. I don't know if you've ever read it. Like I said, it's four chapters. You can read it in less than 20 minutes uh, easily. And uh, it's an amazing just story. Just as a piece of literature, the book of Ruth is amazing. As a matter of fact, it's so amazing that Benjamin Franklin, back in the day, he was a member of an of a elitist, uh, I'm going to call it snobby for lack of a better word, uh, literary club that was based out of England. And this literary club were very much, uh, they're called the infidels, and they would bash this Bible as a horrible piece of literature, and they would elevate uh, other pieces of literature. And Benjamin Franklin, who was not necessarily even a man of faith, but absolutely understood just in terms of literature, the value of the scriptures, decided to challenge that group one day. And the way he did it is he took the book of Ruth. He changed the names of the characters and read it as a short story. And this group of literary snobs just praised this ancient manuscript of this beautiful love story that we see in the book of Ruth. And then he kind of had the, ta-da, you don't actually know what you're talking about when you say the Bible isn't an amazing piece of literature. And that's the book of Ruth. And so from just the literature value of the story, it's one of the most incredible love stories in history. That we have this, I mean, from the Bronze Age love story, still preserved is amazing. Amazing. And so I want you to see some of the things that get pulled from here. 
Um, if you have your Bibles, you can open to Ruth chapter one. I'm gonna summarize the very first part of it so that we're all on the same page and you understand what's going on. The book of Ruth doesn't actually start with the character of Ruth. It starts with the character of Elimelech. And Elimelech is of the uh, tribe of Judah. He lives in Bethlehem, and it's in the time of the Judges, the book of Judges. And there's a famine in the land. And he is relatively wealthy and decides that in order to survive this famine, he is going to go to the land of Moab with his family. He has a wife, her name is Naomi, and they have a couple of boys. So that begins a 10-year journey for their family. And they go to the land of the Moabites. Now, this is significant because the Moabites are, this is a, this is a multicultural story. The Moabites are a completely separate culture. And to go to this land would involve immersing themselves in a completely different culture. It's a risky move, but they have the financial means to establish themselves in a foreign land. Now, the reason that the Moabites are a particularly um, strange choice for where they would go is the origin of the Moabite clan is pretty sketchy. If you read through the book of Genesis, you'll meet a guy named Abraham. He has a nephew named Lot. Now, Lot has this incredible experience that ends up costing him his wife um, in a town called Sodom and Gomorrah. And God just destroys the town. Lot escapes. His wife doesn't make it. And then there's this really interesting and kind of horrific, plug your ears, little ones, story at the end of that that involves a very gross incestual relationship with his own daughters that one of the sons that are born out of that is a guy named Moab. And now you have the Moabites. You also get the Ammonites out of that. And so why do I tell you this story? I want you to understand the cultural context of these two communities coming together. For Elimelech to take his family into this land that they kind of looked at this entire culture with disdain is a pretty heavy thing. But he makes the decision. He evaluates his situation and his resources. He says there's a famine I'm relatively wealthy. I can relocate, restart, and do this. So he takes Naomi, he takes his, couple, his two boys, and they move to Moab. Everybody still with me? So we get to Moab, and a series of unfortunate events happens. First one is this, Elimelech dies. Now, during that time, his sons have grown up, and they've both gotten married. The family's expanded. But Elimelech dies. Now, for Naomi, this is potentially a catastrophic situation. Her husband has passed away. You gotta remember at this time, especially women in this culture have very limited rights. So she is now completely dependent on her two boys to kind of protect her estate. But they've married Moabite women. I mean, they grew up in Moab. And they've married a couple of gals. One's name is Orpah which is kind of like Oprah, just move the H around. So if I miss say that as I'm going, sorry. It's definitely not her. And the other one's name is Ruth. Well, during the course of this 10 years series of unfortunate events, she loses first one son and then the other. Imagine this situation. She's left her family, her culture, her home. She's trusted her husband to start their life again in a new land. She's brought her two boys with her, raised them there. They've married local women in a foreign land, and then they've both passed away. 
in the course of 10 years, the amount of tragedy, sadness, loss, all of the men in her life that she loves are gone. This is Naomi's situation. And so in this moment of pain and loss, she looks at the two women that she's left with, no grandbabies to speak of, and says, it's time for you guys to go. I'm gonna pick up in verse 12, in the book of Ruth. And she does what a lot of us do. She gets bitter. When we suffer loss, she does what a lot of us do. She gets bitter. She says, return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, hold on, just right there for a second. Can you see the picture? The words that are coming out of her, she's telling her two daughters, hey, just go back. We're already in Moab. Just go back to your families. Go back to your house of origin. Try to restart your life. And they say, no, we don't want to leave you. She goes, there's nothing for you here. I got nothing. She says, return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight, and then even if I gave birth to sons, would you wait, this is hilarious, until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, listen to this. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. Wow. What a powerful picture. I mean, I gave you this story. Can you feel her pain? Can you feel the pain of losing a husband, and losing your boys, and seeing two women who were grafted into your family and saying, go back. All of a sudden, this bitter. Here's what's amazing to me. The more I got into the book of Ruth, the more I realized this is a story about two women. This is not just a story about Ruth. And Naomi's experience, because she experiences all the things that Ruth experiences, and her reaction to this experience tells us something about Ruth's devotion. She says, it's more bitter for me than for you. Bitterness. Isn't bitterness a powerful thing? I remember the first time I heard someone define bitterness, the best definition I ever heard. Bitterness is I drink poison and I hope something else dies. Right? Bitterness is I continually poison myself and I'm bitter and I hope you die and I hope that thing dies. I hope that business dies. I'm eating the poison. It's not harming you, my bitterness. It's harming me. I'm poisoned. I'm contaminated. But I hope the end result of my poison or my contamination is that pain gets inflicted on you. And she experiences bitterness. We're going to skip ahead and then we'll come back and work through it. But I want you to see verse 20. In verse 20, she even moves beyond that. It says, don't call me Naomi, she said. She told them, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I want you to catch something. I couldn't get past this when I was studying. She went from experiencing bitterness to saying my identity is someone who's bitter. Do you see the difference there? Do you see the subtle nuance? This happens to us so often. We experience something. We go through something. And instead of processing it, dealing with it, giving it to the Lord, we just adapt it as part of our identity. We say, hey, you know what? I've suffered loss. I'm just a person who loses. 
Whoo. And here is Naomi saying, you know what? Something happened to me. Bitterness met me. I had some pain. And instead of processing that, I'm just going to become it. Listen, don't you become the thing that happens to you. Don't do it. Life will throw some stuff at us. Come on now. We are going to experience some stuff. If someone stood in front of you in a place like this, in a position like this, and told you you were not going to experience anything, I don't know how to tell you this, but if you get into this word, they clearly lied to you. We're going to experience some things. Praise be to God that he never leaves us nor forsakes us. We are not defined by what we go through. Our identity is not tied to what we experience. Never let your identity become linked to your experience. That might have been all you needed. How much time do I got? <laughs> Let's back up. Let's back up. <laughs> the, the quote I want you to catch here is just don't become bitter. Don't become bitter. Don't become it. You can experience bitterness without becoming bitter. Let's back up. Ruth, chapter one, back to verse 14. These three ladies are crying. They're processing their grief. It says verse 14. At this, they wept again. Then look it. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. I don't know how far I should go. I'm going to go there. Some of us have some people in our lives that you need to be okay with letting them kiss you goodbye. Right? We need to stop fighting to hold on to people who are happy to leave us in our pain, in our weakness, in our tough times. Okay? I'm just going to go there for a second. Some of us have been around, come on, experienced some folks that have been happy to leave us in our pain. Yet we fought to hold on to them. Oh, don't leave me. Come back. She doesn't chase Orpah. She kisses her goodbye in her pain and says, go back. It's okay. Not everyone's supposed to walk with you through everything you go through, but some people are. Don't resent those clingers. Some of you are like, oh, my friend's too clingy. Praise God for your clingy friend. Thank God that Ruth clung. She clung to her in her pain. She clung to her in her circumstance. She stuck with her. Some of us in the moment want to push everybody away. Get out of my life. I'm going from experiencing bitterness to becoming bitter. I'm going from experiencing pain to becoming pain. And we start pushing people out of our lives. But Ruth was a clinger. Come on now. Some of you are like, oh, that clingy friend. Praise God for those friends that cling, that cling and that hold on. If we could just get the wrong people out of our lives and the right people into our lives, we'd probably solve a lot of our problems. If we could just stop trying to chase the wrong people and start appreciating who God has brought into our lives, who he's assigned to us for this season. And there is something powerful about what Ruth says next. It's so powerful. I have a hard time really explaining all this. But Naomi tries to get rid of her first. She's like, look, look, 
Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Just go back with her. She's trying to push her away. She's saying, I'm just going to go ahead and die here. I'm just going to go ahead and become bitterness. I'm just done. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, and here we see Ruth's devotion. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Listen to this. Because where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I'll die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me. May it be ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. And when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging. There are gonna be people that God brings into your life that you can't root them out. And for divine appointments and moments they are brought into your life and it's good and it's healthy and it's okay and we have a hard time with that sometimes we have a hard time understanding because we want to be independent and when we're hurt we want to give full vent and fury to our pain and God's saying hey I got someone for you I got a season in your life I got someone and you know who this is you know who that is that person who stuck with you, who was there, who walked into your pain and hugged you, that stayed close. And here's Ruth saying, I'm in. I got you. We're together. You're not alone. What an amazing picture of devotion. So the two women, verse 19, I better get going, went until they came to Bethlehem. Remember, she's from Bethlehem. She's from the tribe of Judah in Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Now, this is what women do. Sorry, guys. They start gossiping. Look at this. It's been 10 years. 10 years ago, her, her husband, her boys, they bounced during the famine. And suddenly she comes back with a Moabite woman at her side and no hubby and no boys. And she's bitter. And they're like, can this be her? The whole town's gathering. Oh my goodness. Have you seen her? Her mascara is everywhere. She's been crying. Where's her boys? Right? They're doing it. So Naomi, defiant, here's verse 20, looks at these women, these townspeople, her family, her kin, says, don't call me Naomi. She said to them, call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Verse 21, oh my goodness, this is so powerful. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord's afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Oh my goodness. Do you see her words? I went away full, but I came back empty. I want you to think about something. Did she go away full? 10 years ago, there was a famine. 10 years ago, the greatest pain and circumstance in her life was, are we gonna be able to manage our time through this financial struggle, through this food struggle, through this economic crisis? 10 years ago, the biggest problem in her life was economics. Here's what I want you to catch from this. Sometimes the problem you're going through right now will cause you to miss the value of what you have right now. Because 10 years ago, she thought she went away empty. But 10 years later, I went away full. I had my husband, I had my boys, I had my family and our future. Some of you, oh man, some of you just need to hear this. What you're going through right now 
pales in comparison to the provision and the blessing God has already given you in your life. And you can't see it or appreciate it because the pain of the immediate has become so big in your life, you've missed the power of God's fulfilled mission in your life up to this point. And so your perspective is just out of the water. 10 years later, she comes back and says, man, I was full. (laughs) I was full. Some of us right now in this room are risking what God's entrusted us with because we feel empty because of some other circumstance, because the job situation hasn't worked out. Because I'm not willing to walk through this tension with my family. I just want out. We're trying to escape the pain of the right now and we're willing to mortgage the future of God's provision and blessing to do it. I went away full and I came back empty. I I think that's a, there's a whole, there's a whole message right there. I could just, but I won't. We'll just keep moving. We haven't even talked about Ruth yet. We're going to get to Ruth. I want you to see Naomi's reaction. The squeeze and the pain of life was on her and bitterness is what came out. Don't get so caught up that you cannot appreciate what you have. Let's move forward. Chapter two. I love chapter two. Chapter two is an amazing, amazing, amazing picture of just life in this time and what happens with Ruth. Um, I'll read it because otherwise I'll talk forever. This will help me talk less. Ruth chapter two. Now, Naomi uh, had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, remember him? A man of standing whose name was Boaz. Now, you may recognize Boaz's name because a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Rahab and Boaz was in that story, but we'll get there. And Ruth, the Moabitess, <laughs> she's going to be the Moabitess all the way through. So just so we know, Ruth, the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. Now, <laughs> as it turned out. If you're a highlighter, an underliner, and you have your Bible open, you should highlight or underline that little piece right there, as it turned out. If you don't have your Bible out, but it's under your chair and you have it, you should get it out, you should open it to Ruth, and you should highlight or star that little phrase right there, as it turned out. You can circle. (laughs) As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Let's uh, leave this as it turned out. Back up just one slide there. We got to catch something here. Remember I told you this was a beautiful story. So you have an opening scene of pain and loss. You meet characters, they have a struggle, and you have this opening scene of pain and loss. They've gone back to Bethlehem. They're back in Naomi's hometown. Now, this is not where Ruth is from. You have to understand the predicament that she finds herself in. Naomi is not going to be useful again for the rest of the story. All right, I just want you to catch that. She has no means of support. She is a widowed, older lady with no children to take care of her. She has only Ruth. And Ruth gets up and goes and does something extremely risky and extremely necessary. Essentially, what she's doing is panhandling in this culture. There was a law that the Lord instituted that essentially said, 
leave, when you harvest your fields, you leave the edges, the very edges or the things that fall on the ground so that if a foreigner comes through, it's like a hospitality, a way to feed the poor in this culture. And she has gotten up alone in a culture where she doesn't belong as a young woman, unmarried and unprotected and gone out among the men who are out there harvesting and begun to pick up grain. I want you to understand the danger of this predicament. It was not uncommon for women in this situation to become abused by these men out here in the fields. They don't have rights and no one to stick up for them. She is in a very dangerous predicament, but she is determined to provide for both herself and Naomi. And so she goes out. Now we know that there's a relative named Boaz because the story has told us that, but she doesn't know who Boaz is. Boaz is not in the picture at this moment. But as it turns out, she just happens to find herself in Boaz's field. As it turns out. The implication is it just so happens. The literary picture of this is she was out. It was dangerous. She didn't know what was going on, but just happened to find out that she was smack dab in the middle of God's protection and his provision for her life. As it turns out, how many times in our lives are we walking through life and everything seems to just be going and we're like, I don't know why this job didn't work out. I don't know why this relationship didn't work out. I don't know why I didn't get that thing that I was hoping for. I don't know why that financial provision didn't happen when I wanted to. But as it turns out, the God of heaven and earth had a plan. And I just happened. I love the literary phrase, little did she know. It's the same expression. Some movies have popularized it. Little did she know that she was in the middle of God's plan for her life. She's just out picking up scraps. She is culturally marginalized. She is ethnically marginalized. She is genderly marginalized. That's a word. But little did she know she was right in the middle of God's plan. Little do you know. Little did you know. But I messed up, Pastor Mike. I blew up my marriage. I messed up, Pastor Mike. I, I, I lost my job. I messed up, Pastor Mike. I messed up. I messed up. I, my, my decision, this thing happened to me. Yeah, yeah. But little do you know that as it turns out, God is still on the throne. As it turns out, as it turns out, how cool is that? God's still working. Man, verse four. Just then Boaz arrives from Bethlehem. See, Boaz wasn't even there. He arrived from Bethlehem. He greets the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseers of his harvest, hey, who does that young woman belong to? He notices there's a woman out there. Come on now. The overseer replied, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here. Listen to this. From morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. Catch this. What does Boaz, what does Boaz know about her? She's a hard worker. She's got character. She's taking care of Naomi, who he knows is his relative. She doesn't know. She's been willing to stay 
with her, even though Naomi's gone through horrific circumstances, and she is providing for her family the only way she knows how. Boaz's eye goes, whoa, that's my kind of woman. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, an endearment term, right? Listen to me. Don't go and glean in any other field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. He brings protection and provision in a time when she had neither. God sends the things that she needs in the middle of her crisis through this person. And whenever you are thirsty, go and drink from the water jars that the men have filled. That's a big deal to have permission out of her culture to go and drink from their water. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found favor, such favor in your eyes? And you notice me, I'm a foreigner. Boaz replied, I have been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother, your homeland. You came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ever felt like all you had was a wing and a prayer? God sends a redeemer the beautiful depiction of redemption that's coming is so incredible. Her response, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. She said, I might just read this whole story to you. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I don't have the standing even of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. How are you doing? <laughs> have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. All right, you've been to one of those fancy restaurants where they give you the bread and the vinegar and you mix it and you dip it. That's what's happening here, okay? You think that we invented that? That's been going on for a long time. <laughs> so she sat down with the harvesters and he offered her some roasted grain. Listen, this is so cool. She ate all she wanted and she had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave her orders to this man. So look, catch this. She's eating and she's stashing the leftovers. She's frugal even in this moment, okay? Come on, guys. Who does not love this woman? Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks from her, from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So he pulls his guys together and he's like, listen, take care of her. Let her gather whatever she wants. Not just the stuff that's like the scraps. Pull a couple of the good stalks out. Let her grab that stuff too. We're gonna take care of this girl, all right? Don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. You gotta catch what this is. I, I had to kind of research the math. I'm not going to use even the language of ephah because it doesn't make any sense. Essentially, a normal day's gleaning was about a pound of food. That's what she would normally have had, okay? This is the equivalent of about a month's worth. That's 30 to 60 pounds, okay? She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Now, here's what you got to understand about Ruth. The other thing we know about her, she's buff, She's buff, 30 to 60 pounds, and she carries it back. She'd been working all day in the field, doing hard labor. She's buff, and she comes back and carries that back to Naomi. She also brought out what she had and gave her, oh, her, her leftovers from the bread and wine-like moment that we had, right? She brought that out for her, right? 
Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one uh, whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him. He has uh, not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. Did you catch that? All of a sudden, bitter Naomi goes, wow, did God just be kind to us? Was kindness just displayed? An absolute paradigm shift happens in Naomi's heart and life right here when she sees the provision of the Lord. I want you to catch what Ruth did because we're talking about devotion. Ruth got up, went out, and did the thing that was necessary to get through one more day. She was surrounded by not just the expression of bitterness, the personification of bitterness. She was surrounded by pain. She was surrounded by grief. She was surrounded by loss, but she got up and she went out and she said, I got one more day in me. And little did she know that in the middle of her faithful work, God was orchestrating a plan to put her in a place where his provision for her life, come on now, could redeem her. This story is amazing. I'm not gonna be able to push all the way through it. You can read it in 10 to 12 minutes. It's four chapters, come on now. I'm gonna summarize for you a little bit here. Boaz says, you come stay with me for the whole season. Ruth gets up every day for the entire harvest and gleans and gleans and gleans until the, prof the, 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 the provision is so great that they're okay again. But that's not all. Naomi's not done yet. She's kind of a schemer. I told you chapter three is a trip. There's this amazing scene of her sending Ruth to Boaz when he's um, merry of heart after food and drink. He's buzzed. And she says, you go and lay at his feet, uncover his feet and just lay there and he'll tell you what to do. Because he's a kinsman redeemer. You see in this culture, the way that they provided for the estate of a man who passed away, because land was everything. The way they protected that is a near relative would come and would redeem, pay for, buy the property of that person who had passed away. And in doing so, he would inherit not just their land, but their family. And then he would provide through that family to protect the inheritance of that name. This was a big responsibility and not everybody would do it. But Boaz was positioned in the family to go and restore Naomi and Ruth to redeem them back into their family. So you have this amazing picture that unfolds in chapter four because there's someone else who's first in line before Boaz. So Boaz, having been smitten, goes to this other man and says, hey, Elimelech's family and household is out there waiting to be redeemed. Do you want to redeem it? And the guy says, sure. Catastrophic end to our story. <laughs> but then he mentions, oh, by the way, there's a wife. She doesn't have any kids. So you got to claim her and provide for her also. Oh, by the way, she's a Moabite. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. It's one thing to just expand my land. 
but to take on a wife, to battle culture and put my own estate at risk to do it, I'm not interested. And Boaz says, okay, then I'll do it. And what an incredible picture, a precursor, a picture of redemption to Jesus who would come one day and say, none of you are outside of the family. I will pay the price to bring every one of you inside the family. I will do it. What an incredible picture of God's provision. And so I got to wrap up the end of the story. I'm going to jump to Ruth chapter four, uh, uh, verse, um, how about 13? And we'll wrap it up. It says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Ruth chapter four, verse 13, all the way at the end here. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Look at what the NIV says. Cover some children's eyes here. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And those women, remember those women? This can't be Naomi. She's crying. Where's her husband? <laughs> the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who clung to you, who stuck with you, who was the kind of friend who didn't allow you to become the thing that you experienced and in her own experience remained faithful. Your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. You see who has a son there? You see who gets redeemed in this story too? God didn't forget Naomi in her pain. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of some guy named David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of some guy we met a few weeks ago named Salmon. You remember Salmon? He fell in love with a gal named Rahab. This is Rahab's great-grandson. Our grandson, Salmon, the father of Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of David. And on and on and on and on till Jesus. She, a Moabitess. We met a harlot that got grafted into the line. And now we meet a Moabitess who gets grafted into the line. And you know what I'm starting to recognize? Jesus came for all of us. No matter what's your background, no matter what's your history, no matter what's your story, you can be part of his story. That's the story of redemption that's in Ruth. That's what's available to you. That's heroic. Would you stand? Ruth goes from no redeemer, no food, no family <laughs> to redeemed, to family, to ending up in the line of the great redeemer. 
Sometimes we try to be devoted, but we can't see the big picture. Come on. We try to be devoted, but in the circumstance, we get bitter. We try to be devoted, but in the moment, we feel the pressure and we run from the thing that God's called us to. And the question I have for you today, can you remain devoted? Is there a chance that as it turns out, that little did you know, that you might be right exactly where God called you to be? Is there a chance, even if you're running from God right now, even if you're, I'm thinking about Jonah, even if you're running from God right now and you jump out of the boat, little did you know there's a whale, there's a fish ready to take, he, you can't run from God's will. You can only reject it. Little did you know, you might be right exactly where you're supposed to be in this moment, at this place, to make a decision to say now is the time to trust God because he can change my story.